Kindergarten, Saturdays 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on Revolution Radio. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We gotta stop us! They're gonna kill us all! See how the trouble you've started? Be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings! Time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part, and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop, and you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. Chris, you tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution Radio. We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyal? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given rights, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we take that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. All right. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Let me turn, turn that one down, I think, just so I don't have an echo. Uh, you're listening to Revolution Radio. Uh, my name's Dennis. This is a show called Free Association. And it's just after 4 o'clock in the UK, uh, 11 a.m. on the East Coast in the States. I'm here for the next hour. I haven't really got a plan for the show as yet, so I'm just going to start by, by asking for a, a mic check, I think, and talking to the, the people in the chat room, or at least saying hello to the people in the chat room. So if you do want to support the, sh- the show and support the station as a whole uh, just go to revolution.radio you'll find 
a chat room there, you'll find a way to make a financial donation. We're all we're all volunteers here, so nobody makes any money. We just we do it for love, and we do it because we like to do what we do. Uh, I've been doing this for what three and a half years now, pretty pretty close to officially three and a half years, I think. And uh, started the week before lockdown, so the timing for me was fantastic because I, I got a chance to uh, have something to focus on. When I was when I was locked locked away for for the first whatever it was three months where we didn't get to even do anything really, uh, we were we were we were told to shelter in place. Don't don't talk to anybody who isn't your family. Don't don't go near anybody. Do like one one shopping trip a day, one trip around the block for exercise a day, or walking the dog or whatever. So. In all that time, I, I would have gone insane without this radio show. I really would. Would have gone insane. And uh, I'm grateful for for Rev Radio for for being being there and being supportive and uh, being challenging at times. Uh, yeah, there's there's some good stuff goes on on Rev Radio. Some very good stuff goes on. Uh, there's also some quite challenging stuff goes on, but uh, that's the nature the nature of the beast. It's a it's a community station, uh, lots of varieties of people, lots of varieties of points of view, and it's a free speech station. So you get you get the opportunity to hear somebody else's point of view and not agree with it, or you can agree with it, or or whatever. However you want to deal with it, but everybody has the right to their their opinion. Everybody has a right to express their opinion, and uh, whether you like it or not, that's the way it is. So there's no point in not liking it because it's just the way it is. Right, as I said, I, I don't have a plan, but I have been watching videos for the last couple of hours, so I might share a couple of the videos that I've been watching. And uh, I was watching... Uh, an interview with uh, Dr. Brian Ardis last night, the, the presentation he did with Mike Adams uh, on the, the Venom hypothesis. So COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 as, as Venom, so spike protein as genetically pretty, pretty close to being identical to, to snake venom. And I, I didn't take it all that seriously a year ago or a year and a half ago when it was first being suggested. I'm taking it much more seriously now than I did then. So I'm looking at it with fresh eyes. I'm still not 100% convinced. And uh, I'm, I'm waiting to see what emerges from, from the, the solutions that he's suggesting. Because if he's right, then the solutions that he's suggesting will be the solutions. And if he's wrong, they won't be. So that's an easy way to test the hypothesis. Is uh, if, you, if you get sick, use a bit of nicotine gum or a nicotine patch or whatever. The suggestion is that uh, the place that 
the place that um, snake venom binds is the same place that nicotine binds in your brain or in your brain stem or wherever it is. So there's an easy way to test the hypothesis is if, if the solution works, then the hypothesis is correct. That would be the easiest way to do it for me. I'm not going to play that though. I recommend people watch that particular presentation, but it's two and a half hours long. And it's too, it's too long to cut down to half an hour or 40 minutes for a radio show. So I'm not going to play it, but what I am going to play is uh, a little bit of a, a documentary piece. It's about 20 minutes on the, uh, the $6 million man, which is a TV show that I liked as a, as a kid, as a, as a, what, a nine-year-old, I think I would have been, in 1973, eight or nine, 73, 74, when it first started. I was a big fan of the $6 million man. So here's a little bit of uh, nostalgia to get us started. Science fiction was one of the main genres where this was very true. Thanks to the success of series like Star Trek and Lost in Space, there was a deluge of offbeat, actually good genre TV. Typically, it was with some sort of tie-in or angle to get children to watch and or buy something. And just wait until Star Wars happened. But... The early 70s would find a new kind of hero to grab the hearts and minds of kids across the country and he'd bring with him some of the coolest toys around because he was literally made up of metal and plastic himself. The six million dollar man would jump into television history with a premise that was brilliant, cutting edge, and perfect TV fodder. It would also make a heartthrob and icon out of a guy named Lee Majors who would eventually play the father to our Lord and Savior, Ash Williams. But that's another show. On this episode of Gone But Not Forgotten, we have the technology and capability to make the first episode all about the $6 million man. This will be that episode. I'm just going to click random stuff and something I'm sure is going to come to me because that's you know what I love about this kit. The Six Million Dollar Man actually started as a novel named Cyborg, and no, this has no connection to Jean-Claude Van Damme's 1989 cinematic masterpiece. Cyborg was written by Martin Caden and was followed fairly closely by the eventual TV series. In the book, Steve Austin is an astronaut who is horribly maimed after a plane crash from which he somehow survives. After the accident, Rudy Wells, a doctor and master of high-tech bionics, works with the Office of Strategic Operations, along with Oscar Goldman, one of the high-ups at the OSO, to put Steve back together again. The book veers from what would happen in the TV series somewhat, with Austin having some interesting augmentations, like a radio in his rib, a removable eyeball with a camera in it, and a finger that can shoot poison darts. Pull my finger. <laughs> Hello. 
While, yes, there's a lot to poke fun at here, the book doesn't shy away from the more serious aspects of Steve Austin's resurrection, as it were. When he realizes how injured he is, he tries to kill himself. He hates basically being made into an indentured servant in order to pay back the costs of his new body and abilities. But Steve would wind up accepting his new enhancements and becoming a more willing and happy to participate spy and agent for the OSO. The Cyborg book series would actually continue on while the Six Million Dollar Man TV series was airing, but it would not actually follow the storyline of the show. The world of the novels was far different with a total of three books following the original. The Six Million Dollar Man was a made-for-TV film which would be used as a jumping-off pilot that aired on ABC on March 7, 1973. In the pilot episode, as in the novel, Steve Austin is injured during an accident that nearly kills him. He loses his right arm and both legs and is blinded in his left eye. Austin is put back together by Rudy Wells for the OSO. In this first film, there are some definite differences from what would later be associated with the series. There were actually three made-for-TV movies that preceded the show, and the first had some notable cast differences in characters. The biggest would be the lack of Oscar Goldman, played by Richard Anderson. In the TV movie, the character who was in charge of the OSO is Oliver Spencer and was played by the always awesome Darren McGavin. Also in this version, Rudy Wells will be played by TV character staple Martin Balsam. The character of Rudy would change over the course of the films and series three times. First with Balsam, then Alan Oppenheimer, and Martin E. Brooks. The iconic sound effects wouldn't be a part of this first entry into the series either. The TV movie was a rating smash and was followed by two more TV films that same year. The second film, airing in October, would give us Oscar and Alan Oppenheimer as Rudy 2.0. This would also see the introduction of the OSI. In November, the third made-for-TV movie would air. As said, these original films would be edited to two-parters and added to the series run with some additional content. The titles for the made-for-TV films would be The Six Million Dollar Man, the Moon and the Desert, Wine, Women and War, and the Solid Gold Kidnapping. The official first episode of The Six Billion Dollar Man would air on January 18, 1974. The series would follow Austin as he would go on missions for the OSI and would be filled with spy work and rescues along with some interesting surprises along the way. Sure liked it better when we were on the same team. Of note, the second film was written by TV legend Glenn A. Larson. The first season of the series would quickly introduce the familiar sound effects and special effects that fans are familiar with. You know the ones. Hear me. Come on in. And the all-important intro where Oscar tells us that we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We can make him better than he was. Better, stronger, faster. It's interesting to note, the first voice you hear during that opening narration is actually producer Harv Bennett saying, Steve Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. Bennett worked in the TV industry for years and would be responsible or involved with some of the classics of TV world with the likes of Mod Squad and a number of made-for-TV movies under his belt. 
he'd go on to bring to the big screen one of the best sci-fi movies of all time. Certainly the best Star Trek film ever made, The Wrath of Khan, in 1982. Along with Bennett's future connection to Star Trek, the Six Million Dollar Man would have connections throughout the genre and also get some major accolades. The first TV movie would be nominated for a Hugo Award. Some of the writers throughout the series would include DC Fontana, Peter Allen Fields, Mark Frost, and Kenneth Johnson. Kenneth Johnson would be one of the show's producers and is the man behind a few shows we've discussed here on Gone But Not Forgotten. But as a writer and producer on The Six Million Dollar Man, Johnson would contribute one of the biggest pieces of the series' history when he introduced Jamie Summers in Season 2's two-parter, The Bionic Woman. Jamie would become a love interest for Steve. Lee Majors would actually sing the love theme for the duo called Sweet Jamie in multiple episodes, just like he'd sing the theme for The Fall Guy a few years later. Our friendship is finished, that's true. Who would share a similar tragic fate, which would lead to her becoming said bionic woman? When a skydiving accident nearly kills the tennis player, Jamie goes through the same procedure as Austin. Jamie would become a returning character on the show after supposedly dying in part two of the storyline, which would also include Steve proposing to Jamie. I don't want to go too far into the world of the bionic woman as well. She got her own series and deserves her own episode, so keep an eye out for that. Needless to say, Jamie Summers will become a major player in the franchise, and other bionic characters, both good and bad, will become part of the lore. One of the more interesting of these would be Barney, the $7 million man. Barney is played by actor Monty Markham, who ironically was who the producers originally wanted to play Steve Austin before Lee Majors won the role. Some other standouts from the series episodes are, of course, the Fembots. No, not those. These Fembots. The creepy robot wiring revealed faces of these things are just, well, creepy. The Fembots are part of a recurring group of robots who would fight both Steve and Jamie over the course of the series. One of the most well-known, insane, and neat episodes from the show, though, are The Secret of Bigfoot, written by, yet again, Kenneth Johnson. This episode has Steve taking on Bigfoot. Interesting fact, he was played this first time by the legendary Andre the Giant. The design and look of Bigfoot in this is pretty awesome, and more than a little scary for a kid. The story involves Bigfoot, aliens, and earthquakes. It's a fan favorite, and there's lots of reasons why. But you only really need to remember, Andre the Giant is Bigfoot, and that should be enough. The episode was so popular that a hilarious homage of it was on the Venture Brothers. Bigfoot will return again the following season in The Return of Bigfoot. This would actually be a crossover event with the Bionic Woman that season. But instead of Andre the Giant, Ted Cassidy would take over the role of Bigfoot, a.k.a. Sasquatch. Lee Major's real-life wife and fellow TV icon, the late Farrah Fawcett, would appear in a number of episodes of the show as different characters. While Steve and Jamie were the bionic power couple, that didn't stop Steve or Jamie, for that matter, finding other love interests. But we always knew they'd end up together eventually. Lee Majors was, before being cast as Steve Austin, really known for westerns. 
He had a major role in the series The Big Valley and had done turns in Gunsmoke and other TV series and films. But it was really the $6 million man that made him into the pop culture icon and TV legend he is today. Majors is still acting and even got nominated for a Saturn Award for his co-starring role as Bruce Campbell's daddy in Ash vs. Evil Dead. I mean, who else could have done it, right? The only thing I didn't like about it is he started calling me Pop. <laughs> now he still calls me Pop. <laughs> it's an endearing term, Pop. Lindsay Wagner would play Jamie Summers. Wagner, like Majors, had done some film work, most notably in The Paper Chase and several TV guest roles before bringing Jamie to life. Richard Anderson, who portrayed Oscar Goldman, had a ton of films under his belt before becoming part of the OSI, at one point appearing on an episode of The Big Valley with Majors. But it would be as Oscar Goldman that he'd be best known for, playing the boss of the bionic crew who himself had a heart of gold. The show would have a list of guest stars a mile long of familiar faces and massive talent. Besides the aforementioned Farrah Fawcett and dueling Bigfoots, there would be John Saxon, William Shatner, George Foreman, Sonny Bono, Eric Estrada, and Greg Evigan, just to name a few. Glory in the 70s, kids, it was a magic time. The $6 million man would last for a total of five seasons. In that run, it would become a massive hit and would release some of the greatest toys ever. Maskatron was a sort of meshing of all the robot nemesis in the show and came with faces you could switch, including Oscar and Steve. I think this other face is supposed to be John Saxon's, but I'm not sure. You could pop his head off. The Steve Austin doll is just freaking neat and had an eye you could look through like a telescope and a removable arm plate. There are different versions of him with different bionic abilities. Bigfoot got his own toy as well, which could pop open his chest to show all of his electronics inside. Oscar got his own toy, which came with, uh, rather oddly, an exploding briefcase. There were play sets and even extra bionic parts for Steve, which could buy and pop off his legs and put on. There were vehicles too, as well as a Play-Doh set. Basically, the $6 million man knew how to make some bank when it came to the kids. Books, comics, records, you name it, you could probably find Steve Austin on it. The series would end in 1978, but it actually sort of didn't. Flash forward to 1987, and NBC brought back together Steve and Jamie for The Return of the $6 Million Man and the Bionic Woman. It was quite the family affair with Lee Majors II, Majors' son, playing an OSI agent. But funnily enough, not Steve Austin's son in the TV movie. That role went to Tom Shanley, who, in a continuing wave of bad luck for the Austins, gets nearly killed in a crash and has bionics added to his body just like his father. The film had a pretty decent budget of nearly $5 million. It was actually a possible pilot for a new series focusing on Steve's newly bionic son, Michael. Martin Landau played the lead villain, who was part of a new group called Fortress. While the series never materialized, the TV film was a big enough hit to get another one made. Bionic Showdown, The Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman, was released in 1989 and would see production moved to Canada. But also joining the Bionic family is a gal by the name of Sandra Bullock. Yep, that's right, Sandra Bullock. Once again, this was another attempt at a new series, this time with a newly Bionic woman in the guise of Bullock's character, Kate. But as the previous film, there wasn't enough interest in producing a full series. But also, like the last film, there was enough to do one more TV movie. 
Bionic Ever After aired in 1994 and follows the dual proposal of marriage from Showdown, with Steve and Jamie planning on getting married. But, of course, there's always some sort of hostage situation to put a wrench into the works. Also, Jamie's bionics are failing, and she needs an upgrade. This would be the last of the bionic films. Wagner mandated that she and Majors get married in this one or she wouldn't do it. Also, a nice bit of trivia, this aired on CBS, which means the $6 million man had appeared on all three of what used to be the major networks of the day. Just as one more aside, I honestly thought this one was filmed in Canada too, but it appears it was South Carolina. I bring this up because the also awesome Jordy Johnson plays one of the main bad guys here. So yes, Dracula and Klaus from Dracula the series were two of the last villains to take on Steve Austin. Bionic Ever After was a nice ending for two of TV's unique and greatest heroes who deserved their happy ending. The Six Million Dollar Man has never been remade or retooled. Not to say no one hasn't tried. Mark Wahlberg has been ready to take on the Six Billion Dollar Man for a while now. Kevin Smith's failed screenplay was adapted to a great comic series. But there's been no traction on the property for years. So the feature film version of Steve Austin has yet to take flight and crash as would need to happen. Honestly, I'm sort of glad. Lee Majors was great in this role in this type of series. One with aliens, robots, and spy tech really can't be replicated today without someone doing it just to mock it or wink at the camera. The Six Million Dollar Man relied on a good and fun story that just happened to have a neat gimmick. It was entertaining, but also well written with characters that you cared about. It was a natural progression from shows like Star Trek and Batman. Technology that could be, and now actually is, shown helping people. It was great for younger and older viewers, which is why it was able to be as big a hit as it was and still be a favorite for fans today. The series was released on DVD and is now available to stream on Peacock, and it looks great. If you've never checked out The Six Million Dollar Man, I highly recommend it. Lee Majors created a likable and fantastic character in Steve Austin. Yes, he was a rugged type, but he also had a heart and cared about the people he loved. He was funny and charming and made a fantastic toy. It's one of those roles that would be hard to replicate or recast. I just can't see it. So yes, sometimes you can't make it better or stronger. Sometimes it's perfect just the way it is. All right, so that was... Uh what happened to the six million dollar man and uh, some might say if I was being very conspiratorial that it was predictive programming but you can't tell what's going to be popular and what's not really you can, you can kind of gauge it a little bit but you can't be 100% sure so if it's only predictive programming if it's, if it's popular and I don't really get how you can guarantee something's going to be popular unless you're making something that's so cliched and so familiar that nobody nobody even thinks about it too hard all right so part two of the show uh, is probably going to be alexander mercurius because he posted something yesterday that i haven't listened to yet so i'm gonna I'm going to play that, but I'm going to play him at, at 1.25 speed because he does tend to be quite slow. And, and it's, to be honest, the, 
the Ukraine war's a little bit it's a little bit dull. The topic's a little bit dull, but uh, if you speed it up a little bit, it becomes more interesting for me. So I do try and keep keep an eye on things, but I don't like to to fall asleep while I'm listening to him. All and I do occasionally fall asleep while I'm listening to him. Uh, I try not to to do that if at all possible. So I'm going to spice it up by making it a little bit faster. Introducing the Saker Mini Chainsaw, the powerful, compact, and versatile cutting tool that every That's DIY enthusiast and outdoor adventurer will love. Say goodbye to bulky and heavy chainsaw. He tests for Good day. advertising on his Today display. is the 8th of September, so we are now well into the fourth month of Kiev's counteroffensive. And can I just say that it is now four months since Ukraine began its efforts to capture Rabotino. And there's again been relatively scant news about the situation on the battlefronts. It's not entirely easy sometimes to get a comprehensive idea of what is going on. But my overall impression is that the Ukrainian offensive is now indeed ebbing and maybe in its last weeks. Some months ago, I said that I thought that the limiting factor would probably be artillery shells, 155 millimeter artillery shells. I made a very crude rule of thumb calculation. I said that on the assumption that Ukraine would be firing around 10,000 shells a day to keep its offensive going. And on the assumption that it had received around a million of these shells from the United States and its various allies, including perhaps South Korea. Well, I thought that an offensive would probably last for around three months and might start to peter out at the end of August. Well, a number of things then happened. Um, some weeks ago, the United States, the president himself, Joe Biden, admitted that the United States was largely out of 155 millimeter shells and that it had to supply Ukraine with cluster munitions instead, cluster munitions in substitution for those unitary 155 millimeter shells and that perhaps has stretched the timeline somewhat it seems the general consensus is that these cluster munitions are not as effective or as useful on this sort of battlefield as the unitary 155 millimeter shells are but the supplement of the cluster munitions plus drips and drabs of 155 millimeter shell deliveries from the United States and Europe do seem to have stretched somewhat the amount of time that Ukraine can continue the offensive. And I was very interested to watch some days ago an absolutely fascinating program on the new Atlas, um, Brian Valetic's show on YouTube, absolutely indispensable program if you want to follow the course of the fighting and I noticed that over the course of it um, his guest Scott of Calibrated who is somebody who as Brian Valetic says devotes a huge amount of his time on the trenches of this war not of the war itself of course but on the trenches of the information war in the various telegram channels Russian and Ukrainian and going through the various Twitter feeds and threads anyway Scott of Calibrated I noticed put the firing rate of Ukrainian artillery at one to two thousand shells a day, sharply below 
the 10,000 that I'd guesstimated would be needed in order to sustain the offensive effectively. And by the way, he said that Russian artillery firings by the time that the programme was made on the 1st of September had also fallen to six to 10,000 rounds a day, which of course is still multiples greater than what Ukraine is apparently firing. But anyway, 1,000 to 2,000 rounds a day, uh, allegedly, is what Ukraine is firing. Um, some part of that will be cluster munitions, but it does seem to be an inadequate number of shells fired in order to sustain an offensive over an 800 kilometer front or indeed to maintain defense right across this entire front. So that might be another factor in perhaps causing the offensive to start to slow down. Anyway, the fact is the offensive still continues, at least in some forms. General Tarnavsky, a few days ago in the interview he gave to The Guardian, Ukrainian General Tarnavsky, he actually did say that Ukraine has had to concentrate its efforts in a small number of sectors now. It can't any longer conduct a general offensive across the entire front line, as it was apparently trying to do earlier, and that it's focusing its efforts in a few sectors. An interesting admission, which hasn't been widely picked up, by the way, but that would perhaps also indicate a running down of resources with which to conduct the offensive and a consequent focus, therefore, on a few small areas of the battlefronts. Now, there have been other guesstimates about the length of time that Ukraine can sustain this offensive. Um, someone on Slavyangrad, I think it might have been Gleb Bazov, he suggested that it would start to run down and perhaps end in the second half of September. Well, today's the 8th of September, so that is not so far away. And yesterday I saw reports appearing in various places, which, by the way, I couldn't trace, though they're alleged to come from an article in The Economist, though I checked in The Economist, and if so, I haven't been able to find the reference. But anyway, there's supposed to be a report that the United States itself now believes that Ukraine can only continue the offensive for a further six to seven weeks at most. So that would take us to the middle of October, which is coincidentally, of course, the time when the rains begin and the mud, se and the mud season starts. Now, I don't know whether and to what extent this is correct. As I said, this is all guesswork by me by Slavia. All right, I'm going to skip the ads. So we'll go. A couple of seconds, that's all it is. By Slavyangrad, perhaps by the officials in the United States. But for what it is worth, for the moment, it does seem as if Ukraine's efforts to continue its offensive are proving, well, a lot less intense than had been the case previously. Now, before I go into the weeds and discuss a little of what is going on, though I don't intend this time to spend a huge amount of time over, the, over it, I will just make uh, one further just point, point of information, which is that Evgeny Belitsky, the acting head of the Zaporozhye 
regional government, I should stress the Russian-appointed Zaporozhye regional government. Anyway, he now says that the Russians have destroyed um, two Challenger tanks. And this is the TASS dispatch. He says that Russian forces have destroyed two British-made Challenger tanks in the Zaporozhye region with Cornet anti-tank missile systems. Two rolled out. The Cornet was used against them. In principle, the very first hit caused one to catch fire. In terms of armour, they have no special features. The Cornets coped with them easily. Our guys hit two tanks. Anyway, that's what TASS reports him as having said. And he says that there's another four Challenger tanks now based in a village called Stepnogorsk and that there's two more in the town of Orechov itself. So two down, another six in the area. Um, this would make eight out of the 14 which um, Britain originally delivered. Now, of course, there's no way of corroborating what Belitsky says. There's no pictures so far of this other knockdown Challenger 2 tank that he's talking about. But I would say that there's been quite widespread reports that the Challenger 2, the first Challenger 2, the one which was indisputably knocked out, was indeed knocked out by a Cornet anti-tank missile. Now, the Cornet is Russia's most powerful anti-tank missile, as you should say, infantry-based anti-tank missile. Russian tanks themselves can also fire anti-tank missiles and do so through their um, main um, tank guns, but that's an entirely different technology. The Cornet is the Russian equivalent, if you like, or at least tactical equivalent of such systems as the American Javelin and the American tow missile system. They are carried into battle by Russian troops, uh, Russian infantry, though they can also be used in the way that the tow missile is also used by the United States on infantry fighting vehicles. Anyway, that, by the way, begs some rather interesting questions because, of course, the first Challenger 2 tank, the one that has indisputably been destroyed, the one that the British themselves acknowledge has been destroyed. Grant Shapps, the British Defence Secretary, says that one British Challenger 2 tank has been destroyed. Anyway, that particular Challenger 2 was located in the area of Rabotino, the village which Ukraine claimed to have captured, well, I think it was around 10 days ago. Now, now if this Challenger 2 was indeed destroyed by a Cornet missile, then that means that Russian anti-tank infantry teams are still operating around Rabotino, or at any rate, were operating around Rabotino a few days ago when the Challenger 2 was destroyed and after the time when the Ukrainians claimed that Rabotino had been captured by Ukraine. And that, of course, would provide further evidence that Rabotino itself continues to be contested. Now, why am I saying all of this? I mean, apart from the interesting fact that it does seem as if Russian anti-tank missiles, anti-tank guided missiles like the Cornet can indeed destroy the Challenger. Well, I say it because I read this rather interesting piece in the Daily Telegraph. It um, features a long reprint of a 
discussion that a U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency analyst gave to The Economist um, a few days ago, in which this particular analyst, Mr. Moore, actually says that there's a realistic possibility that Ukraine might be able to break through all of Ukraine's, uh, Russia's defense lines on the Zaporozhye front. And the Daily Telegraph explains to us that a realistic possibility is a 40 to 50 percent likelihood. It doesn't seem to me particularly strong. And besides, of course, we're told that Mr. Moore thinks that that might happen. There's a 40 to 50 percent likelihood of that happening by the end of the year, which, of course, is weeks away and which, of course, assumes a Ukrainian offensive still continuing for weeks through the rain, the autumn, muds, all of those sort of things, and despite the losses and the equipment shortages and all of those things. But anyway, buried inside this article about Mr. Moore and his um, analyses, which one should take seriously, there is this really rather interesting paragraph. Russian sources said Moscow's occupational forces were launching counterattacks at Rabotino, a nearby village recently liberated by Kiev, in an attempt to create an allure, the settlement. Bobcat Gallery sell affordable art. They got a website from GoDaddy and built an online shop to launch their business and sell online. You could. The settlement is still being contested. So I'm assuming that what the Daily Telegraph is saying is that all of these reports that we're getting from multiple sources, Russian sources, about continued fighting in and around Rabotino, reports that I've covered extensively in previous programs. Well, I presume what the Daily Telegraph is trying to say is that these reports are imaginary. They've made up all the reports of this fighting up. As I said, they are reports that come from Russian sources with connections among soldiers on the battlefronts. They prove reliable in the past. They're often critical of the Kremlin, but it seems that these are fictional reports which are intended to create an allure, presumably an impression, that Rabotino is still being fought over and that Rabotino is not being fought over, but is in fact firmly controlled by Ukraine. That is what this paragraph says. Well, I beg to disagree. I think this is clearly wrong. I think it's not just the case that the reports about the fighting in and around Rabotino are too detailed and circumstantial and too consistent amongst too many sources to be simply invented in the way that the Daily Telegraph says. But as I said many times, not only are the people who provide these sources often, well, largely reliable, but they are often at odds with the Kremlin and with the Russian Defense Ministry. And I find it very difficult to believe that they would invent stories like this and go on doing so for days and weeks on end in order to pretend that Rabotino is contested when, in fact, it is not. But anyway, going beyond that, the fact that a Challenger 2 tank has also apparently been knocked out by a Russian anti-tank team operating a Cornet missile near Rabotino, to my mind, that provides further strong evidence, proof, some would say, that despite this claim in the Telegraph, 
Rabotino is indeed contested. To my mind, this paragraph, by the way, what it tells us is that there are some people in Britain, in the media, who are now starting to have doubts about the claims of Ukrainian advances over the last few weeks, about Rabotino being fully captured by Ukraine, about Ukrainian breakthroughs through the Surovikin line. And this paragraph is an attempt to still those doubts by telling us, well, don't believe all these reports you're getting about fighting in this village. They're all made up by the Russians. Anyway, I just mentioned all of this because that's, it seems to me, an interesting piece of news management here, or at least coping, as some would say. And besides, the story about the Challenger 2, which I accept, by the way, is still open to some uh, question. Anyway, um, the story of the Challenger 2, the destroyed Challenger 2, appears, at least to some extent, to refute it. Anyway, what else has been going on? Well, yesterday there was, in fact, more fighting around Rabotino and Verbovoye, according to Russian sources, according to the Russian Ministry of Defence. Um, there was even a report in Redovka, this is the Russian newspaper based in Smolensk, that Russian counterattacks in Rabotino have driven Ukrainian troops entirely out of this village and that Rabotino now is entirely in the grey zone that no, no side controls any part of it. I think that is probably overstating the facts. Um, there is an accumulation of reports that there are Ukrainian troops in the northern parts of the village at least, and that the southern part of the village is in the grey zone. But anyway, the long and the short of it is that there was fighting in Rabotino yesterday, it seems as if Rabotino remains contested. It seems that there's been no Ukrainian breakthrough in Rabotino or indeed in any other place. And the same seems to be true of Verbovoye as well. No breakthrough by Ukraine there either. All of these places remain contested. Ukraine still continues to fight for these villages in the control zone north of the Surovikin line claims that the Surovikin line has been breached, claims that Ukraine is... All right. For just $67, you can make as many videos as you want, and you never... Let's, uh, ...dispense with the advertising. So that's an update on the, the Ukraine war situation. Alexander Mercurius does a good job. He tends to spend an hour and a quarter on, on his daily updates, which is a long time. And they tend to be quite repetitive. He's, he's got a repetitive way of speaking. And his, his voice tone goes all over the place. I find him fascinating. But he's quite difficult to listen to unless you get you just kind of cut out all the, all the things you could criticise him for, which is voice tone and repetition and the speed of his speech. Ignore all of those things and just focus on the, the actual content. And his analysis is pretty good. He's always he's always quite humble in the way he analyzes things. So I think he's a good a good enough source of information that I I don't listen every day, but I do listen like every couple of days. And sometimes sometimes I skip a day here and there. But the, quite honestly, it's a it's a thousand kilometer front line, and there's not that much happening on it. So 
You can you can afford to skip a deal or two here and there. Anyway, it's a never ending war on the Central Europe Central European front. For what that's worth, I'm sure George Orwell would have something to say about it. Uh, the war in Oceania rages on. So changing the subject slightly, just a, a quick update on my kind of personal situation. My my health my health situation seems to be improving very very slowly. Uh, my confidence level is improving, which is as important or potentially more important, because my my confidence was knocked quite considerably by uh, by the the lack of bladder control. But uh, I seem to have found ways around a couple of the situations where I I was having trouble. So the main thing is to work out how to get around these things. So even if my health, even if my bladder control doesn't come back completely, at least I've got a, a relatively normal life again. And that's what was concerning me, really, is uh, the possibility that it wouldn't come back at all. But it seems to be coming back very, very slowly. Every day I get a little bit more confidence and a little bit, little bit more bladder control. And hopefully it'll be back to normal within the next month or so. Might take a, a month or a couple of months to actually get back to normal. Though I'm not, I'm not expecting miracles, but I do like to think that uh, I will get the use the, pro, the controlled use of my bladder back at some point. It's driving me nuts. The first couple of weeks were really, really depressing. And my my confidence just went completely. So at least at least I've got that back. So that's a good thing. I haven't I haven't quite got got back into my routine of podcasts or doing shows on Podbean or whatever. But uh, I'll get that back at some point as well. I'm at least the radio's back to normal now. I've still got a post last week's show on the podcast, but I'll do that later this evening and then I'll post this one tomorrow and from that point on we should be alright let's let's finish with a, another five minutes of Alexander Mercurius hopefully we can get rid of this advert need to pick up a camera or use any fancy editing software with Doodly you'd... claims that Ukraine is moving on to the second line are clearly for the moment wrong Certainly, that's how it looks to me and all of the reports that I'm seeing from the battlefronts, which I judge reliable, all of them largely confirm that. So nothing much going on there. Some reports that the Russians have made some advances in this town of Marinka near Donetsk, that the fight for Marinka is finally coming to an end. As I've said, this has been a town which the Russians claimed that they'd captured about a year ago and haven't in fact captured. And this has been a prolonged and I think for the Russians somewhat embarrassing episode. But anyway, there's some reports that the Russians are now finally in the process of clearing Marinka. And also reports that Ukraine has essentially stopped attacks on the Vremevka salient, that they might be in fact be in the process of redeploying troops from the Vremevka salient to the Zaporozhye front lines, perhaps to try and renew attacks towards Arabotino and Verbovoye, who's to say? And dribbles of reports 
about continued Russian advances on the Oskol River line and further north towards the town of Kupiansk. And can I say, on the, in terms of that offensive or mini-offensive that the Russians are conducting on the northern front lines, um, Vladimir Putin promoted some of his generals yesterday, and I noticed that one of the generals who has been promoted, promoted is General Modvichev, who is commander of the forces south of Kupiansk, who have been pushing towards the Oskol River. He's been promoted to Colonel General, which is a rank just below the rank of full general. And clearly, Putin, at least for the moment, and one must assume the defense ministry as well, are pleased with him. But anyway, that's all I can say about the situation on the battle lines. It does seem to me that time one way or another is now running short and that certainly it's looking increasingly unlikely that there's going to be any major Ukrainian breakthrough this month or next month. Um, there's an accumulation of reports that Ukraine is running, has run through a lot of its manpower, that it's struggling to make up the numbers if it's in its soldiers, that it's no longer able to recruit numbers of men in the quantities that it needs to keep its forces up to strength, that it's considering a further mass mobilization in the autumn and winter, and of course that Ukraine's offensive generally is running down, and as I said, that a breakthrough for the moment looks unlikely. There are, by the way, some claims, I saw yet another claim, that there are rumours that in Ukraine they're now talking about reaching Tokmak, important town on the way to Militopol, by the thaw. Now, the thaw is, of course, in spring. It's in April, to be precise. If Ukraine really expects, if there are really reports that Ukrainian commanders and officials are talking about reaching Tokmak by April, then I think we can truthfully say that this offensive is now indeed winding down. And going back to that um, program on the new atlas with um, um, which I which I was talking about with I'm so proud of RTT. It is an amazing therapy. RTT means rapid dispense with the advertising. It does my head in a little bit, but um I refuse to give YouTube my twelve quid. I used to I used to pay for premium subscription for YouTube, but I don't I'm not doing it anymore. I refuse to do it. I've got a a plug-in on, I, I use Firefox browser, I've got a plug-in where I can download the videos. So, so most of the time I download videos and I, that, that avoids the advertising. Uh, so there are ways to get around it, but uh, for the moment, when, you, when you're doing live, well, live, playing YouTube live on the radio is not really an, a solution to anything, but... Uh, I didn't have a plan for today's show. I'm just kind of working it out as I go along. All right, so I think we're pretty much at the end of the show. Just a reminder, I'm here every Saturday, Saturday afternoon for me, Saturday morning for you. And uh, we, I try and keep it varied. I try and keep the show kind of fairly unstructured. 
sometimes I've got a plan, sometimes I don't. Usually, if I don't have a plan, it works reasonably well. And quite often, if I, if I stick to the plan, it doesn't really work. So you can't tell how the show's going to go. They're a bit hit or miss sometimes, but uh, I'm just getting back in the swing of it. So I think I think we're doing okay for today. It's been a bit of fun and and some serious stuff. So I don't want to make it serious and and conspiratorial. Just at the moment, uh, we'll we'll give it we'll give it till the autumn before I start to do that again. But uh, so that's pretty much it from me. I shall I shall be back at the same time next week. And uh, hope you have a good week. Uh, check out revolution.radio. Come down and say hello in the chat room, and I'll see you again next week. Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Hi, I'm Bill Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. I am not an attorney and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the courts. Don't be a loser. And if you don't appear, you will be held in contempt. Are you interested in the paranormal? Murder mystery? Real natural law? Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crip Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Crip Rick's iPhone, thank you. Welcome to the Crypt. <laughs> the Secret Kindergarten is here for the young children of the world. 